tonight is going to be awesome because I really feel that there's a new level and a new power that's coming upon um, not only just this body, but I think individual lives around us, and it's really exciting to, to watch. And uh, there was um, some people that were talking, we were praying about Epic Life and and praying that there's been so much sowing for, for so long, and, and I've known a lot of you guys for uh, for a bit, and I just feel that there's a season of harvest. I just broke that. <laughs> um, let's do the other one. This is really important stuff, really. Uh, that there just is, is a new season of harvest coming in, in our lives, and I think that starts here, and it starts with how much are we willing to put effort into it? How much do we really, really want it? Is, is the, the limits that we accept for ourselves, the, the parameters and the boundaries that we allow in our life, that will set the limitations of our existence. And so I ask you tonight, like, how far do you want to go? Do you look at your life and you say, I just want to go this far? I just want to have a, you know, a $70,000 a year job with benefits, 2.5 kids and a dog. You know, what, what is the limit of your existence that you've set up for yourself? And I think a lot of the times, and I, I love talking about this because I'm the uber optimist. And uh, I, I really feel like I, I've been called to, to have that ambition for limitless living is what someone blessed me with. And... Uh, and I think that that's one part of it, but there's another part of it, too, that we're going to talk about tonight is, is what about our mess? What about our stuff? We have all these things that, that happen to us, that happen to us, that we go and venture, and there's consequences, and so we, we accumulate just sometimes baggage and mess around us. And this can take all different shapes and, and forms, and, and to be honest, I wasn't really prepared uh, to talk on this, this topic. I was thinking about something else, and then... I was down in Southern California uh, last week, and uh, I came back, and uh, any of you guys know me, you guys know I love my dog. Actually, I think we have a photo of, of my dog I'll, I'll throw up there, but um, that is my dog. That's me on a little scooter. Um, so this, this is like, you, you come to my house, this is what you're going to see. I'm going to be like spoiling this creature, this dog. Any dog lovers in here? Can I? Okay, thank you. I don't feel too weird. I'm like the ultimate, like, make you feel uncomfortable how much I like my dog kind of like, you know? You, you know those people who are like, oh, what, what is he doing? What, it's, it's a dog, you know? And I never thought I'd be that guy. I'm glad I, I got this dog after I was married because I don't think my wife would have been all too excited about marrying someone that had that kind of psychosis about him to another animal. But this dog is, 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 is next to my wife. I, I love this dog. And she always, you know, she teases me. She's like, would you rather have a dirt bike or Coco? Like, Coco, you know. It can be anything, and I'll always choose my dog. And uh, I love to spoil my dog. I bought this whole entire setup, this scooter and sidecar, just for my dog so we could go around. I'm not kidding. Uh, you come into our home, and, and we have, like, an indoor bed. Then we have, like, an outdoor bed. Then we have, like, a bed when it's, like, warmer, you know, out, and it's, like, thinner, and it doesn't get her too hot. You know, like, it is, it's really gross, like how much I work to, to make this creature have a good life. It's really crazy, because she was a rescue dog. She was like a mutt, like a throwaway dog. And, uh, and so I came home from Southern California, and when we leave, we see some neighbors that get to take care of her, and I don't know if that buzzing's me or if that's uh, up there. All right. Sorry. I, sometimes I worry about my microphone setup if I'm doing it right. Uh, so we come back from, uh, from L.A., and uh, we're there, and so I see my dog, and so the dog has been with another 
a, a group of people, and so I'm always like really insecure, like my dog still loves me as much as I love her, you know? It's really bizarre. So I go home, and I see the dog. I didn't get to see a whole lot of her, but then later I come back the next day. Ah, oh, thank you. Uh, it's like, maybe I'm going deaf? Like, is there a high-pitched buzzing? So I come home, and I'm, I'm like ready to play with the dog, and we have this whole routine where we roughhouse, and I have her squirrel, and I throw it across the room, and I run around, and I tell her, go get mama. You know, we go and run and go find Camille, and, you know, we do all these different things. Well, I come home, and oh, the whore. This is the dog that never does anything wrong, ever. Like, she does something wrong once, we discipline her, she never does it again. Come home, and she has somehow found her way to go in the front yard, and we have a big front yard where a bunch of people walk by, and there's like a huge mound of dog crap on the front yard. Not that big of a deal. I pick it up about every week or so, and I got to mow the lawn, and, and so not a big deal, but then the one thing that made it this interesting is that Coco, for whatever reason, decides that she wants to go roll around in this mound pile of stinking dog poo, and not just like a little bit. I mean, it was like all over her collar, all over her face. I mean, you could tell she just got in there and just did one of these, you know. And like it was her job. Like you would have thought that, you know, if, if you could have rolled in, in poo better, you know, it would not match this. And my heart was totally broken because, you know, now i got to take her to the dog wash. But like in the meantime, I can't, like you can't even come 10 feet within her and dog poo is gross. Oh, the smell everyone's like you know getting sick right now it's it's so disgusting and have my prized precious dog who i want to spoil and roughhouse and all this thing is covered in some other dog's poo and it's just it drove me nuts and i was so bummed and i realized that there's all these consequences to that i couldn't let her inside i couldn't you know wrestle around with her i couldn't roughhouse i couldn't do all these things and, and there's consequences and it really bummed me out and she, you know, kind of thought it was like punishment. She's like, well, part of the routine is I get to do this. And, you know, it, it just it really saddened me to know that my, my treasured little pet has found some poo and rolled in it and now has to sit in its poo until I get to clean it off. <laughs> and I got to wash the dog the next weekend, but it was a brutal kind of week and for me and the dog. And, and so <laughs> this is eventually going to mean something somewhere. And what was kind of pressed on my, this is, this is Coco theology here. Uh, is, is that sometimes that's us. Is that we can be in a position where God is engaging with us. He longs to spoil us, longs to be with us, longs to engage with us, and it shows affection. And sometimes we go and we find a mound of steaming dog poo and we just roll ourselves in it. And we don't really have a good reason. It's not particularly normal for our behavior. And there's consequence, there's separation, there's, there's consequences to it. And so we have some things in which we can talk about, like, like the one-time thing or a couple times and, and sin. But tonight I want to talk about just that stuff that's just on your neck, you know? Like that stuff that we carry around that we need to wash off from us. We need to move past. We need to move beyond our shortcomings and our failures. And we need to embrace God because he wants, he wants that intimacy with us. I mean, a lot of things is I think Coco kind of picked up that she stink and she just reek and you could tell like she had shame because you know you look at the dog and her eyes tells you everything her like ears down and when I went and smelled her and she just you could tell that this dumb little throwaway dog could feel the gravity of what she did even though I didn't punish her I didn't you know I couldn't do that 
And I think that maybe some of us, we, we come and we, we say, okay, I've really messed up. And, and we don't even need to be told that we've messed up. We just we feel the gravity of it. And maybe the shame that we hold and the, the things that we take on, we, we recluse back. And if we don't break free, if we don't say, I need to get washed, I need to get free, I need to get clean, what happens is slowly we get more and more okay with the stink on our bodies. More and more we become okay with the separation that we feel. More and more we become complacent because getting clean all of a sudden doesn't sound that much better. We begin to lose sight of how nice it was to be inside and to be at your master's feet in front of the fire. It's like my favorite routine is having cocoa in front of the fire. I'm sitting doing my study. She's down. I'm just, you know, rubbing the ear, whatever that is. I love that. Sounds so dorky, huh? (laughs) I'm hearing myself. But I think that's what we're we're at sometimes is that we we find that separation. So we're going to go through uh, only 30 verses here. And this is a jam-pack verse or set of verses. And there are eight truths in here. We have these little cards on the, on the table, and we're going to go through some of these fast, but what I don't want to do is I don't like birdshot theology. You know, we're all so when you talk about a whole bunch of things. I'm going to break it down through the verses and, and point out the, the imperative truths, and, and these are really the keys for us to deal battle and to get free and to, to move forward and advance back towards our maker, back inside the home where we belong. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 4. Verse 1. It says, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had gone, to, gone through Samaria. We'll come back to this in a second. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sinkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Key phrase there, that he was tired. Everyone say tired. This is such great news for you and I because this means that Jesus understands us. This means that Jesus, it says that God in flesh took on the weak nature, the weak flesh of man. God in all of his glory and all of his power and of all of his eternity came down and was placed in a full functioning, full body of a man. I think sometimes we don't like to think about that. We don't like to think about that Jesus actually, you know, went through the normal behaviors as of. We, we like to think that maybe Jesus never passed gas or things like that. No, I mean... He was fully man. It totally tweaks you, huh? But, but this shows that he had physical limitations upon his flesh, just like we do. He was tired. He was thirsty. He went to a well. He walked there. He was fully man. And that is the first truth tonight, is that Jesus understands. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, Jesus understands. Whatever temptation, whatever brokenness, whatever spiritual angst, whatever emotional angst, Jesus understands. He's fully God, but fully human. He took on our physical weak nature, and so he understands our pain, our suffering, physically, emotionally, spiritually, everything. 
He was fully tempted to the, to the even crazy capacity that we could ever fathom as we read this through the scriptures about how Jesus was tempted. Even to the moment of his final crucifixion, he chose, Lord, your will be done, not mine. He was tempted beyond our imaginations, and so we have great joy that we can take in knowing that Jesus was tired. Jesus has been tempted. Jesus knows our pain, knows what that feels like. He can sympathize with us. He's near to the brokenhearted. He knows the weak, and he knows our weaknesses. That is great news for all of us. Let's read on. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now here's something really cool. We need to ask, why was Jesus talking to this woman? I got to do a little bit of a history study here, and I, I kind of wondered about this. I found this little commentary and this is really interesting stuff. You have to know about the history of Samaria to understand this. Is that about 770 BC, Assyria conquered the northern ten tribes of Israel. And what they did is when they, they conquered them, they colonized them with some foreigners. And those foreigners assimilated into the Jews and they got married, they had babies, and you know, they have this what you kind of assume as like a half-breed Jew, if you will. These people that, that weren't God's people and were kind of the enemy too. All together in one. And so what happened is that if you were like the purified Jew, is that you had just a disdain for people in Samaria. You looked at them and you, you looked at God's big mistake. And you, being so pious and so religious, you would have nothing to do with Samaria or Samaritans. It was that bad. We're in Orange County. You get a lot of, you know, you know, Charles, why don't we go over here? You get a, like a lot of that really high puffery stuff, right? And it's great because, you know, then, you know, people go there and, and uh, you know, visit things, Disneyland or whatever. But you just think like, okay, what if the U.S. government took the dirtiest armpit area of New Jersey and plopped it right down into Newport Beach and said, go, I mean, that's what it would be like. You'd have all these snobs just be like, oh, these horrible people, and oh, look at this about them, and that, and them, and this. And, and so we, we look here as we see that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's because of this, this, this historical context and, and that disdain that Jews inherently had for them. Really important. So why... Was Jesus talking to this woman? She says, why are you talking to me? You are Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? This is the second truth tonight, is that Jesus meets you where you're at. Jesus comes to you. We can take great comfort in that, that Jesus is going to go to where you are. He is going to go out of his way. The text tells us that Jews will intentionally avoid Samaria when they're traveling. For this exact reason, they'll go around it to wherever they need to do. And so Jesus plans and changes his, his whole entire itinerary to go to Samaria. That's huge. He completely alters his path so that he would have a divine appointment with this woman. We'll find out that this woman is horribly burdened by sin, horribly burdened by guilt and shame. And so Jesus goes to where she is at. I think this is a, 
awesome example of evangelism and redemption for us. I think maybe sometimes we assume, oh, I'll just bring my friend to Epic Life or bring it to church or Capitol or Bayside. And, you know, I'll, I'll bring my friend to church. When Jesus is laying an uh, example here, he's like, why don't we go to them and why don't we give them truth, bring them redemption, evangelize it out there. Yeah? Love that. I think it's a great principle for us right here to know that salvation doesn't happen here. Salvation happens out in the field. This is where we all just kind of party and have fun, right? Ride big wheels. But God's work happens out there. We are commanded, if we are Jesus' disciples, we are commanded to go out to the areas of Samaria in our context, in our world, the the broken, the people who need Jesus the most, the outcasts, and we're supposed to go to them. Awesome teaching evangelism right there. We'll move on. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with, with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him for, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I can, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And here's the the truth here, is that Jesus operates in a different reality that we often operate in. See, her entire attention, she was totally focused in on the natural, the flesh, the needs of her body. She was totally focused on this well, this pot, this bucket, this water, this well, this rope, whatever that is. She was totally focused on that. Do you see that, that Jesus answered about the living water two times? And then in between, she's like talking about, what are you talking about? This well, and you don't, it's deep. And, you know, Jesus has twice appealed to her spiritual need, and she's so concerned about the physical need. Catch that? That Jesus is going to look at our our needs of our flesh that we think are important, and he's going to point to a spiritual absence that we have in our life. I can look at anybody, and even myself, and as we look at things, when, when I feel this, whatever this is for you, this could be, I have a habit of seeking out relationships with females because I don't know what it's like to be single. We can take something like that, and we can point to an exact void and hole of that you don't feel that you are loved by God. I see it all the time. That is the most common one I see. We can look at insecurity and fear, and we can find everything that you see wrong about God through these insecurities, but oftentimes we're worried so much about the physical. And Jesus is here to say that I care about the spiritual need in you. You allow me to take care of the spiritual need, you won't have the physical issues that you're talking about anymore. I love that. Jesus answers the needs of our flesh with the Spirit. That is truth number three. I love it that he does something cool in here is that living water in in John chapter 7, he talks about living water as being the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit for several weeks, and so what he's saying is that whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, 
the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now that idea, everyone focus here, the idea that when Jesus comes into your heart, he plants a spring of water. A spring that is bubbling up pure water that flows out of you. That is the Holy Spirit. He says, when you drink of the salvation that I offer you, suddenly out from your life that flows is eternal life and flows fresh water for those around you. He says, you'll become a source. It's not that you get saved and that you'll have to go to some other well. It says, you get saved and you find Jesus in your heart, you find freedom, and now you are a contributor of pure water yourself. It's amazing because we're in El Salvador and we were installing freshwater filters in homes. The organization name was Aqua Viva, Living Water. And so when we come to Christ, is that he then plants in us the capacity to flow goodness out of ourselves through the Holy Spirit. We don't have to work for it. It springs up. Jesus makes his home inside of us with this. He exchanges the needs of the flesh with the Spirit. Let's read on. Verse 16. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. Dun, dun, dun. I have no husband, she replied. I have no husband. Let that one kind of marinate for a second. Because I bet in this moment right here, there's a big, awkward pause. (laughs) Jesus sitting there with his nice beard, you know blinking. You have no husband. What does he say? I lost my place. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now everyone jump back a few verses there. Look where it says, go call your husband and come back. This is truth number four, is that Jesus gives you opportunities to come clean. He will give you endless opportunities. When you stink on ice, you have your dog poo on you, he's going to give you endless opportunities to come clean. He's going to offer to you. He's going to come to you. He's going to go to where you are. He is going to bring it to you and give you an opportunity to get clean. Now what's interesting is, going back to the Samaritan Uh, context of Jews and Samaritans is that Samaritans was also used as a derogatory term. Samaritans was a slang, something you could put someone down with. Actually, in uh, John, I I think John chapter 8, the religious leaders are sitting there mocking Jesus, and they're like, what, are you a demon-possessed Samaritan? I mean, little rib, of course they know he's from Nazareth. Are you a demon-possessed Samaritan? Ha, 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 rib, rib. They use this term all the time. You were defined by your behaviors. Samaritans had a bad rep. And so an awesome thing in here is that when we, we look to God and he addresses, gives us an opportunity to come forward, is that he's not categorizing our sin. He doesn't categorize our sin when we come to him. He wasn't like, hey, are you an adulteress? You know, he's just like, go call your husband. It was non-assumptive. And he allows you to have an opportunity to say the truth. He gives you opportunities to come clean and have truth. But what we do is that we, we squirm, and, and because we don't like the law, we don't like to know that somewhere in this book, I've done something wrong, and it tells me it's wrong. We don't, we don't like that. 
And here's the, the context and the importance of the law. The law is just a mirror to us to show that we don't line up. It's just a measuring stick to say, look, here's perfection. The only person in all of existence to meet perfection is Jesus, and you don't happen to line up, and that's okay. It's not to condemn you. The law is not to banish you. The law is just to show you that there's a standard and that you don't meet that standard. But what's awesome and what we can take joy in here is that when we come and we don't hide from our sin, when we don't pretend like it's not there, and we give half-truths, you know that how you can say, you know, something to somebody and it's really half-truth when they ask you something else? And you're just not including all the information. That can be so tricky, and it's so easy. Well, I didn't lie. Well, you didn't tell the truth either. Like, we need to take to the gravity, the importance of that, that Jesus comes and asks her, go call your husband. She says, I have no husband. She didn't think that he would call it. But I love it because Jesus, when he said that, there wasn't any pretext, any prejudice that he would have over this woman. Now here's the bummer part, is that being in fallen flesh is that we have total prejudice over us. We have total prejudice over the sins that we struggle with and the sins that we don't struggle with. And if we don't struggle with a particular sin, we all of a sudden look at that and be like, man, that sucks. You know, we like, we're kind of happy that we, you know, have our little private sins over here when, you know, that person, ooh, man, they're going to get it. Get them, God. You know, you get it because it's so public. And it's very easy for us to look at someone and, and call them an alcoholic or call them a pornographer or a sex addict or, or whatever you want to say. I mean, we can throw such amazing words. And here's what these words do. When we are able to allow ourselves to bring words and to categorize someone, to bring a prejudice, to label somebody, this does one very important and deadly thing. When we do that, when we call someone an alcoholic, it suddenly gives me permission to separate me from you. It suddenly makes it okay for me to completely separate myself and disassociate myself from you because now I've given you that label and I'm not of that label. How convenient. And so Jesus comes and he, he doesn't bring any prejudice to us. He doesn't see the adulteress. He doesn't see the pornography. He sees people and needy souls. That's all he sees. And so I think that maybe sometimes we talk about our shame is that we come to God and we got poo on us and we're like, man, that's horrible. He doesn't care. He's not going to play favorites with whatever vice or sin you have. He's not going to categorize you and put you into this never-to-be-redeemed box. Truth number five is Jesus doesn't rub our nose in our sin. Do you know how much grace was in here? In this passage, as Jesus says, go call your husband, and she's like, I don't have a husband. And he's like, you had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband either. You know how much grace and mercy is in there? Because what he could have done is he could have pointed out all of her shame. He could have pointed out the times, the places. He's all-knowing. This right here is a word of knowledge. Remember last week we're talking about El Salvador and about how God would give us crazy, like, weird revelations of things. I mean, we had someone who said, I see a Christmas tree. What does that mean? And all of a sudden, a, a husband and wife are weeping because when we said that word, we said, God has put a Christmas tree on our, our heart. And they begin to weep because they had been fighting over a Christmas tree and being symbolic of the troubles of their marriage. Jesus has a word of knowledge here about her husband. And when he brought it, it wasn't like, na 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 na. He's like, here it is. It's okay. Do you want to deal with it or do you not want to deal with it? 
Either way is fine, because you don't see Jesus saying, you liar. He doesn't say that. He just kind of points out the truth. It's like, all right. You, you actually are correct, is what he says. You're right. You're very, very clever. You don't have a husband. You have five. That's great. Good job. You know, let's play again. And so Jesus totally read her mail, but he was so graceful. And, and as we look at our sin, we need to know that Jesus looks at sin in us as a cancer. He looks at it as one cell that leads to two cells, that leads to four, that leads to eight, that leads to 16. This multiplying, replicating cancer that goes in us. And eventually it is going to choke us out and it's going to kill us. That is how Jesus looks at sin. And repentance and forgiveness are the only things that separate us from being cleansed of that cancer. He doesn't care anything else about it. But I think maybe sometimes as we look at our sin and, and maybe we want to confess like the, the nice, you know, open ones. Oh, you know, X, Y, Z. When right here we think about the woman who's been sleeping with all these men. She's an adulteress. She's all these horrible labels that we'd toss on her. And she has all this shame. She has all of this heaviness over her. And she's not going to come out and say, I'm a whore. I'm sleeping around. She'd probably rather say, I don't go to temple. I don't do these things. She would have rather kept her sin on the very nice, open, and public one, not the dirty insides. And so as we look at God, as we look at his habit is never to rub us into it, is we need to come and say, we can bring God's darkest and deepest shame that we'd have over our mistakes. We don't need to be bashful about it. We can just be like, here it is in all of its glory. It stinks on ice and I'm tired of it. And I'm ready to be done with it. I don't care because you don't care. But I think maybe some of us, we have these little tiny boxes that we'll plug away somewhere back and that is our secret sin that we could never, ever let someone else know. Ever. We hold on to it. And it's our little monument to our shame. These little boxes we hide in. But we need to come and know that Jesus is not going to rub us in it. Truth number six. I'm going to read uh, the lead in real quick again. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you are now, you now have, is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. You can see her flattering him. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. What? I just read your mail. I just told you that you have five husbands. I just, I told you your life story, and you asked me a question about where the Jews should worship? Are you kidding me? You guys pick that up? This is a total diversion tactic by the woman. She's totally confronted. She is, she's out. I mean, you, you could have not nailed it more than anything. And what did you said? I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <laughs> what do you say? I mean, she's doing anything to get the topic off of her. Don't we do that? Don't we do that when, when God points out something, we're like, what about this over here? What, what about this? Or, or God, what about this? Or I've done this, or I've done that. Diversion, this is the, the sixth truth. Diversion is rebellion. When we have diversion in our life and we begin to move and to switch the tension off of the confrontation that Jesus has placed, the revelation, the truth, the freedom that he's offered us, when we create a diversion of all the attention off of that onto something else, that is rebellion. We don't like to think about it that way. 
We like to think that we're rebelling against God when we try and make it about something else. When, it, when your number's been called, the best thing you can do is just own it. Just own it. He's not going to rub our nose in it. He's not going to come and pick favorite sins. He's not going to condemn us. He's going to come to us. He's going to give us an opportunity. All we need to do is step forward and be real. But the temptation for us, because we are such people pleasers, I think our generation, more than anything else, that we struggle with is trying to please everyone else, including God. When it comes to it, we need to say, here it is. I'm not going to spin it. I'm not going to give you a couple more white lies over here. I'm not going to create up another lie. over. I'm going to own it. I'm just going to wear it. It'll be better and faster if I just wear it and own it and take it and take the sting like a band-aid coming off and live that way rather than make believe that there's no scar there and letting it fester and get worse and worse and worse. There's a, a saying, I, I don't know who said it, but one of our leadership members uh, once read it to me and said, if we hide our sin, then Jesus has to pull us apart to reveal it. And ultimately, that is going to leave us to be exposed, possibly publicly, because that sometimes is the consequence. If we hide our sin, then all we're doing is we're making more work for Jesus to restore us. You are permanently delaying the process in which God would restore you. But when we reveal our sin, Jesus comes to us and he covers us. Like that? is that when we open up the kimono and we say, here it is, and the ugly truth is that Jesus comes and puts his arms around it and he hides us in himself. Whereas the other way around is when we, we hold down, we protect, and we put a, a death clamp around us is that God slowly has to move all these obstacles out to get to it. And that is diversion and that is rebellion. Number seven, two more. Let's look at verse 21 and 24. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This is a prophecy real quick that the temple was going to be destroyed about 80 years later or whatever. That uh, you will not worship neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That word true there is re- referring to sterling, is, is meaning purified. It means that when we come with true and genuine worship, not like the true people, it's when our worship is authentic, when our worship is legit, when it's not filled with pretense and obligation. It says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's drawing attention away from a place and to a person. He's saying that the real, genuine people who seek God don't care about where it is. They don't care about what church it is. They don't care about the zip code you're in. They don't care about if you go to the 8.15 or the 9 a.m. service or the 11 o'clock service. He's saying it doesn't matter about place or location. It matters about who you are worshiping. Who are you in, in relationship with? He's saying it's not about religion. It's all about relationship. 
And spirit and truth cannot be separated. It says that the two need to be together. And let me show you the difference between Jews and Samaritans here. Is that Jews were very religious. They were strict about worship. They were strict about worship. And so they had their bodies brought into submission as they would brag about how good they've brought their bodies into submission. I have not sinned in eons or whatever. You know, they, they took pride in having their bodies be completely submitted to the law. But, as Jesus would always say, is that they are completely void of the Holy Spirit. They're completely void of the Spirit. So that is the truth. But the Samaritans, albeit unfortunately for the reputation, is that they were really good about having God, and God is so great, but your actions don't follow what you're preaching. Is that the, the, the challenge, they have the Jews over here that are, I'm going to do 10 out of 10, and I will repent a million times a day, and all this stuff. And then you have the, you know, pie in the sky, oh, we love God, he's so great, but I'm going to actually go and live a, a way completely contrary to that. And what Jesus is saying here is that when you worship in spirit and truth, these two need to be lined up is that you need to have the freedom to go and worship, not in a place, not a temple, but to a creator, a loving father, and that he would birth the Holy Spirit in you that would birth out goodness from you because you are now a spring of living water. You come with the Spirit, and he produces life out of you. Worship does not depend on places or things. It depends on our heart. Worship is to be 24-7. That's what epic life is all about. Epic life is purely about that worship should be 24-7, whether that's music, whether that's sports, whether that's BMX or motocross or surfing, whether that's fashion, whether that's painting, it doesn't matter. Worship should be 24-7. It's just a painting. If you are comfortable defining it that way, are you okay with saying that I'm going to go surfing and because that's worship for me when I go out and meet my creator? Are you comfortable with that? Or I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to go do that. And, and you take the passions of your life, you take your giftedness, and you look at it now as worship. That worship is no longer something you go to a Thursday night or a Sunday morning. Worship is now something that you live and breathe, and it is who you are. That business is worship for you. That writing is worship for you. Where do you encounter God? He's saying, don't worry about the place. Focus on the person and then live your life in a 24-7, I'm going to be worshiping God with my existence. It's not about being righteous and reading the Bible and praying. It's those things, but he's saying, I've given you all these things. Why don't you glorify me in all the giftings I've given you? That's worship to me. Is it any less worshipful that we have someone that can play beautiful music versus someone that can get up and deliver a sermon or message? Which is more worshipful? I actually would argue the music is. But we don't like to think of things that way. We don't like to, to look at a beautiful thing that you've journaled or written, and you don't like to look at that and say, that is worship to God. Or to devote your life to athletics and to give God the glory for the athletic ability you have. That is worship. We play basketball because we, we believe that God loves basketball too, right? So why couldn't we go out there and worship God? And some cool things have happened is that we've seen the guys totally connect. And seeing some people get hurt and we'll pray for them, we come together and we, we play basketball because we believe God meets us there, that basketball in our context, when we give it to him, is worship. John Corzin said, sin is not bad because it's forgiven. It's forgiven because it's bad. Sin is not bad because it's forgiven. It's forbidden because it's bad. That we need to have the right mentality and attitude about sin. 
We're going to have the band come up, and this is our last truth coming up here. Verse 25. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, a Samaritan woman at that. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, everyone say leaving. Leaving her water jar, this woman has been just totally just radicalized by Jesus. Her mail just got rung, her bell got rung, whatever you want. She totally encounters Jesus and she leaves her water pot. Leaves what she was doing, leaves the entire reason that she was there and went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way around toward him. And this is the final truth, is that God will take your sin, your poo, whatever you have, and he will turn it for good. And in this instance, he turned it into a testimony. He took an adulterous woman who was there all by herself. Do you notice that early in the text it said, It was at the sixth hour. It is the hottest time of the day. Jesus goes out there because there's no one, no one getting their water that time of day. It's too hot. And he goes out there. Why? Because she is out there by herself. She's out there to escape everybody. She's not trying to be in community. She's trying to remove herself from community. Because you know that she has a reputation. You know that she has a label. She has a category. People have labeled her and curse her with words. And so she's there by herself. And so now Jesus completely reveals this truth about her, sets her free, and what does she do? She leaves the pot on the ground and she runs back to the community that was condemning her. Is that Jesus, no matter what your sin is, no matter what your mistake is, is that he is going to use it for his good. Satan would like to use things that are for for evil, for his purposes, your mistakes. Satan would like to, to needle it to you and stick it to you and say, you will forever live your life defined by this mistake. And, and God is saying, no, I will use that and I will turn it and I will use it for good. And people will know my name because of you. People will know my name because of that mistake you made. And that is the great victory that we have is that we need to know that whatever shame, whatever mistakes we have is that God is faithful to take that and turn it around completely. And he's able to use it for the expansion of his kingdom. It's a lot more work for him that way, but it's better than not. I'd rather have the mistakes I've made turn into the greatest advancements of my life that brings people to God. I'd rather have that than be forever condemned and defined by my mistakes. He could have left it that way. He could have said, what you reap, you sow. If you've sown mistakes and you, you, you've sown compromise and you'll forever live in compromise. But he says, no, when you repent, when you come back to me, I give you a blank slate and I'm going to take those mistakes and I'm going to use them for my advance and my purpose. This woman was a woman who had a reputation, was a woman who was a catastrophe by cultural standards. And he took her and the truth moved in her so in such a huge way that she dropped her pot and she ran back to the people that have inflicted the most harm to her. What would it be like if all of a sudden we get free of all that stuff that we have? What if we come and we say, God, that 
that we already know that you know the deepest and the darkest. And so what we're going to do instead of pretending and playing games and lying and telling half-truths and moving ourselves out of the picture and creating diversion, we created everything about anything else except for us. What if we came and said, here it is. The good, the bad, the ugly, here it is. What now, Lord? It's your problem now, right? I think the hardest step is when we actually need to come and we need to confess with our mouths to Jesus of our sins. The Bible tells us to cast your sins upon one another, to look to brothers. If we confess our sins with our mouth, he is faithful and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And maybe as we, we look at our lives, as maybe we've, we've run a life, we're, we're pulling a lot of baggage. We got the exterior looking good. Hey, brother, how are you? Good to see you. God bless you. But secretly behind, we're towing this bag of junk and garbage that we've refused to be okay with and given it over. And it's created bitterness. And it's festered. And here's the thing about bitterness is bitterness gives us permission to withhold love. When we're bitter about our sin, when we're bitter about our circumstances, it gives us permission to withhold love from God. I'm here to say that if we expect to go anywhere, both as a community and also also in our our lives, is that we need to address the stuff that we're toting around. Because we need to come clean. We need to have a culture in which when we mess up, we don't hide, we don't divert, we just own it. No matter what, we own it and we bring it. And when we do it, he is faithful. His word has set a course here that is for our good, not our bad. And so when we own it, he moves us and he frees us. Success breeds success. The strength of our community is only going to be as powerful as our willingness to be free from our junk and to move in the power that God offers when we get free of that. Until we do that, we are going to be limited. We're going to be finite. We're going to have limitations on everything we do. Until we come to God and say, God, I want to see you move. He says, okay, great, awesome. But first, I want you to be real with me and give me these things first. I think that's the point that maybe some of us are at. Is that we need to choose, yes, I'm going to go. Or you know what? No, I'd rather hold on to my stuff for a little bit longer. God gives us free choice and free will. We can do either or. And it would break his heart when we say, no, I'd rather not. But I think what breaks his heart even more is is we say, yeah, I do want to go do that. But all along we're pretending like we're not carrying this other stuff. That's it. 30 verses, 8 truths. Let's all stand. So God, we just come and thank you, Lord, for your truth. God, we thank you in just, in such a small story, in such a small sequence of verses, you can unfold such powerful truths, Lord, that are paradigm changers for us. Lord, maybe we never knew that diversion is rebellion. Lord, maybe we never knew that you cared more about our heart and not about our religious acts. Lord, maybe we never knew that you could take the things that we've done bad and to use them for good. Lord, maybe we never knew that all those opportunities to confess our sin, we never knew it was the voice of your son speaking to us, offering us to come clean. And so, God, we just come before you tonight, and Lord, we just pray that you just would radically transform our hearts, our entire definition of what we think righteousness is. Righteousness is not good behavior. Righteousness has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. It's been forgiven. We are righteous because of what you've done for us and who you would cleanse us and make us to be, not because of the piddly little works that we would do. 
the scriptures say that our works are as if they're dirty rags. They're like dirty menstrual rags is what the context really means. That is our best works and our best day, what we can bring to you. And God, that you have offered us complete redemption and complete freedom. So Lord, we, we just proclaim tonight, Lord, that you allow us to be free. Allow us to own our stuff and to give it over to you. We believe that you are faithful to do So Lord, as we sing, we, we lift our voices to these few songs. God, I just pray that you would bring truth and freedom to this place. And for anybody who needs to shout it out and get it out and get this off their chest, Lord, I just pray that there be people to pray with around them or us leaders on the side or anywhere, but Lord, they would not let this be bottled up inside because Lord, as your word tells us, it would eat us from the inside out. Lord, it is a deadly cancer and it will grow and grow and grow. So Lord, free us. Free us. Free us. In Jesus' name.